So if you're super, super new and you thought you were coming here, Brandon, I'm so, so sorry. Brandon's not here today. He will be back probably next week. Um, stick around. And if you follow us on podcast, we're going to do an object lesson today. And if you're super observant, you already know what's in the room that doesn't belong in the room. Has anybody noticed? Who? No, you're too close. Joe, no, no, no. Uh, somebody picked out something in the... If, you're, if, you, if you follow us on podcast, you need to get in your Prius and come see us because you're not going to see what we're going to do. Um, I don't know. It's Austin Prius, right? Austin is such a weird town. Kelly, don't wave your hand. Nobody knows who Kelly is. Austin is such a strange town that even people who run oil services companies' wives drive Priuses. <laughs> Handle that paradox. I'm just telling you, you don't, you don't believe it? Follow Kelly Hanks through her car, her Prius. Anyway, let's pray. We need the spirit of Jesus in this place because it's getting crazy already. Lord, we pray that you'd open your word, open our hearts that you would allow us to hear from you this morning. We make uh, space and time to hear your voice. It's not as if you don't speak when we don't listen, but Lord, we don't hear when we don't listen. And you speak anyway, and it goes unnoticed. And so, Lord, we would pray that you would reveal our hearts to ourselves this morning. Show us who we are and, and how it all works in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to pick up where Brandon left off last week. We're in the book of, uh, in the sixth chapter of the book of Matthew, and we're plodding along. We're getting there. We're moving at the speed of cold honey, right? We're just barely moving, but we're getting someplace. And I think what we're seeing, and I hope this is the case for you, I think we're taking a long look at Jesus, and we're kind of getting a new respect for the actual teachings of Jesus. We don't have that much historical stuff to hold on to. Did you know that? We've made an entire life out of, comparatively speaking, pretty few words. And most of the key words, I think, could be found initially or eventually tethered back to the sermon that he's doing at, the po- at this point in the book of Matthew, right? This is his big initial public offering, right? This is his big rollout. This is the big black t-shirt, jeans on the stage with the little thing in his pocket where Steve Jobs pulls out what the planet wants instantaneously. This is the IPO. This is the introduction of the teachings of Jesus. Now, he's a rabbi, and in some ways he innovates. In some ways, he's, he's a rabbi. And the world expected what he had to say because that's how rabbis taught. But he subtly and very profoundly shifts the entire landscape in the teaching here in the middle in these early chapters in Matthew. So let's pick up in verse 16, Matthew 6, verse 16. It's on the screen if you can read it. You probably can't because there's speakers that block every angle in the room. Have you noticed that? Unlike all the great music venues in Austin, say Austin Music Hall, say the Moody, the Austin City Limits, where you can see from everywhere, you can't see from everywhere in here because this is a middle school. Just reminding you. If you don't believe that, there's a bear on the back wall. And there's always these fascinating, have you noticed this? If you need help, call a counselor posters over the communion tables. Is that like weird? Like I wonder at the setup crew, like do you find the poster and put the table under it? Because it's like if you need help, sorry, details. Matthew 6, 16. So if you can read it, if not, pull it up on your phone and read with me. We're talking about a subject now that I don't know how I got to talk about this, but I don't know anything about this. So we're going to just hit this and move because I don't know anything about fasting. That's not true. Verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full, verse 17. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees 
what is done in secret will reward you. So built on the assumption that we are the kind of people who fast, he's not going to waste his time teaching about what fasting is. Classic Jesus move, he goes right to the motive. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. I love that word hypocrites. Brandon touched on this before. You know what the actual definition of the word is? It's actor. Any actors in the room? I know there's a few. Don't raise your hand. We see you on screen anyway, but you can run to the IMDB website. I wonder what they've been in. Don't be like the actors who, for the screen when the world is watching, put on a role and play with things of devotion like prayer, giving to the poor, or fasting as if it were some kind of performance, Jesus says. That word fascinates me. It's actually a word that comes down into Greek theater, which is exactly that, somebody who plays a role. The gist of what he's saying is fasting is not acting. It's much, much more, right? Our devotion cannot be a charade, is what Jesus is saying. This is a no pretense zone, a no acting zone. It's either real or it's nothing, right? I wonder if we could get somebody to kick those doors closed. So far, we've heard Jesus' thoughts in the last few chapters on who is truly blessed, right? Beatitudes. Who, what is our purpose for being here? Salt and light and city on a hill. We've heard him talk about the law. We've talked about how he's raised the bar, not lowered the bar, right? And how our righteousness has to exceed that of those who perform. It's got to be real. We've talked about murder and anger. We've heard Jesus' thoughts on adultery and lust, on divorce, which is quitting, walking away, on swearing oaths unnecessarily. We've heard him talk about revenge, about loving our enemies. We've heard him talk about giving to the poor, about prayer, now about fasting. And the common denominator is really the same thing. He's driving at a single point, right? What is he accomplishing so far in his teaching? I want to hear back from you guys. If you're tracking with us, if you've been around a while, what is he getting at? Somebody summarize it for me. Wow, that's a tough one. If you can do that, you're it. What's he getting at? What's the common denominator here? Motives. He's revealing the motives, isn't he? He's not teaching the subjects. He's building on the, on the assumption that we do these things, right? But he's questioning the why behind the what. Good. Somebody else. This section has a high expectation of chiming in. I'm just going to say, if you settle over here, we expect like 34% more performance. Uh, because, do you notice that? There's always a word. From, thank you, Jen. There's always a word that comes from the left here. Nothing? You got nothing, Joe? You got nothing. Joe, you got nothing? Joe. I did not say that for the podcast. I did, Christy said that. I did not say that. Where is Brenda? See? You're right. How, what is he getting at? What's the point he's trying? What is he accomplishing with this, this initial teaching? Anyone? Yeah. He's creating a compare and contrast, isn't he? He's lifting up one form of doing religious things, and he's saying that's not what it's about. You can comply with these things and still not get it. You can technically not murder, but in your heart, if you've got anger, you've technically, you've murdered, right? He's, he's raising the bar. He's raising the bar, and he's driving it home, and he's creating a juxtaposition for us uh, between religious things and, what, and, and where he's going. I love how Brandon's described the last couple of verses over the last couple of weeks. God is not impossible to please. He already loves us. What he's saying, what Jesus is saying, is that if you do these things for the audience of those around you, that's all you get. That's all the rewards you're going to get. 
And I think it's more of a, of a, this is a waste of your time if this is what you're shooting at because you will hit it. You will hit it because religious people are very easy, very easy to confuse and to perform for. They're very easy to swoon. It doesn't take much, right? But sadly, that's as far as it goes. And there's so much more than just that alone. Jesus is not going on record as saying, uh, you guys probably should fast and you should pray and you should give to the poor. He's assuming we know that. What he's going on the record as saying is, you, you, there, there's, there's a different reason behind this. There's a different motive behind this. And he's calling that into question. I think essentially what Jesus is talking about, and Brandon mentioned this last week, he's talking about freedom, about setting the heart free from these things we do that help us feel like we're all good when in reality it's not dropped to our heart because our heart has not been transformed. And what Jesus is driving home is you are here to be set free from these things. Isn't it funny how religious things are very often the very things that we surround ourselves with to feel good about something and it becomes a prison for us, right? Doing the right things for the wrong reasons is not good enough. You get that? Doing the right things for the wrong motives for the wrong reasons is not good enough. It's ultimately just another form of a prison cell. Singing to the wrong audience Performing for the wrong crowd, dancing on the wrong stage is just another form of bondage. It's just another form of bondage. And finally, we have a guy teaching the message that it's this enslavement of the heart that matters most. It's the prison cell on the inside that's the big problem down here. And how ironic. Think for a moment, if you will, what it would be like to speak to a people living in captivity and addressing that form of enslavement when everybody wants them to address the Romans who are unrightfully possessing their space, who have their boot on their neck, who are requiring exorbitant taxes for nothing, and who are literally wreaking havoc on this culture. And Jesus waltzes in and his big initial public offering addresses the wrong kind of enslavement. Think of how revolutionary that would be, how upsetting that would be. You know the prophecies if you're a Jew of his day. You know exactly how this thing is supposed to go, and you know that it's not going that way. And so every young rabbi who blips onto the radar screen with a new voice to say, everyone is expected to address the enslavement, the struggle, the problem. And which one is it? It's obviously the one in the physical realm, right? And yet Jesus leaves it almost unaddressed. How scandalous. Isn't it funny when Jesus refers to religious activities, he brings up this idea of rewards. How could he have known that this is exactly how we think of these things? We want rewards for our devotion. We want to be noticed for the things we do. The very, the very way he addresses these subjects just reveals the human heart. And my guess is part of the reason why people around him must have been speechless. What do you say to this guy? What do you say to these teachings? Rewards, accolades, the praise of the peers, the praise in public. We yearn for these things. We long for these things, and Jesus is saying it's the wrong audience, it's the wrong stage. Let's look at the next couple verses there in verse 19 through 21. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy. What does vermin mean? Come on, guys, you know this. Rodents. Do not store, for, store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rodents destroy, or vermin destroy. And where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The problem with treasure is that it owns us, doesn't it? 
Possessions possess, right? Treasures hold us captive. Again, this is so much more than a teaching of Jesus on investment and where you invest and how that all goes down. That's, I think he's driving a deeper point. He's trying to set us free again from what enslaves us. You can be equally enslaved to your possessions if you're poor as if you're rich. And this is the way that Jesus leaves no wiggle room. Following the theme that he's building, it's not the outward accumulation of wealth that makes us rich. It's the treasure we have stored somewhere else, somewhere unseen, somewhere invisible, that we've got stored up in some account that has no access, that we just make deposits into, right? In heaven, Jesus was talking about it. Now, a couple of things he's not talking about. I don't think Jesus is talking about it, that it's evil to save money here. So everybody can take a deep breath. He's not saying that it's bad to plan or that it's evil to save money. I don't think he's saying that it's necessarily wrong to live well. What Jesus is saying, in my opinion, is that it's, there's far more to life than living for wealth and the accumulation of it. There's far more to life than just accumulating and amassing things. And I think he's also saying, in a very practical way, there are ways now to invest in things that matter, heavenly things that matter. I love the word vermin here. Most New Testament translations use the word rust, which I prefer. Anybody can guess why I prefer the word rust? When you're working with old motorcycles, vermin isn't an issue, but rust is a big issue, right? You guys kind of know my thing. Building something beautiful, it was originally produced the year after I was born, and it's still in pieces, and it's, we're working on it, we're getting there, and I don't know if you guys know this, but there's actually something in the room that I want to use as an object lesson that might help you. Now, I know preachers with object lessons in the 80s drove us all nuts. Everybody had to have some, some little bell and whistle and some little, some watermelon and a machete or something strained. I mean, you guys remember that? I struggled this morning. I'm like, Holy Spirit, don't tell me to take that thing to church. And I brought it because I feel like it was obedience. There's this, did anybody notice this thing back here? Whoops. I might have had a volunteer for that. What is this? What is it? Guessing for what? Motorcycle. Wow, very good. Y'all are sharp. Uh, I I need somebody to come up here for a second. I need a volunteer. Seriously, we're going to do this old school, just like a Baptist camp. I need a volunteer. I'll call on you. Just like a Baptist youth camp. I need a volunteer. Seriously, somebody. Brave. Coach is coming. Okay, we got a guy here. Coach, you, you stay in the wings there because you're, you're coming next. Check it out. What do you see? Tell me what you see. Oh, that's like telling somebody their kid's ugly. Hey, he's cute, but his eyes are crossed. Boy. Boy, oh boy. Good, good job. There you go. There you go. Nice. Is that, did it come that way, or is that, is that custom? What's your guess? That's custom, right? Does that paint look pretty decent to you? Yeah, actually, it's beautiful. Yeah, you nailed it. You redeemed yourself. Okay. Now put that thing down. Go sit back down. Come here, coach. Thank you. You can sit down. There's something about this. I want, Coach, I want you to give this a real inspection. And I want you to follow your instinct and tell me. First of all, what is it? Wait for it. Wait. Ooh. Go ahead. What's he doing? What's that look like to you? Well, that looks like rust to me. Shake it a little bit there, Coach. Do it without scratching the paint with that lid. I'll choke you. <laughs> Y'all know we're playing for keeps up here. Okay, so what happens here? Thank you. You're a good man. 
I'll put the cap back on. Thank you. And I think you scratched it. <laughs> this is the tank that's going on the cafe racer that I'm building. I'm building that Mike Shine and I are building. Mike Wave. If you guys need motorcycle questions answered, Mike is the guru. This is a tank that Mike actually had finished, and this is a pro job. This is a, a beautiful custom paint job. Problem is, is the guy he had paint this got the sequence wrong. You're supposed to clean that tank and descale the rust from inside the tank before you paint the tank. Anybody know why? Because when you fill a sink full of acetone, it's almost impossible to get the acetone out of the tank without damaging this beautiful new paint job. You get it? So the outside's beautiful. You get where I'm going. The outside's gorgeous. But you can't run this thing this way. Because every filter along that system, and there won't be many because it's going to be so stripped down, you're going to think it's a bicycle. Anyway, because that's just what we like. That, that rust is going to get caught in the system, and that's going to plug that thing up. And so we have, what we have here a very interesting image of the problem Jesus is encountering, the problem that he's facing. See, on the outside, the paint looks marvelous. The detail is flawless. But if there's rust on the inside, if there's any discrepancy whatsoever between the paint and the rust on the inside... We've got issues, and this is the culture to which Jesus is speaking, and he's calling us to think deeper and think at a higher level, right? I'm not that concerned about moths because I don't keep a fortune stowed away in fine linens and cloth. Maybe they did in Jesus' day, but rust means something to me. That's the enemy of an old frame from the 60s or 70s that you're trying to rebuild, right? Rust is a big deal, and rust on the inside is even a bigger deal because we might think it's all good. When in reality, what's going on in the inside is the real issue. And it's almost as if, if you look at the collection of people that follow Jesus, it's almost as if rust on the outside is not that big a deal. Because he ran with a ragtag group of people. Now, we, all, we call them apostles, and we call them saints, and we call them all this different stuff. But I'm telling you, these guys were a rough group of people. And I'm to the point where I don't know that the rust on the outside is that big of a concern, because it can be dealt with. It's that stuff on the inside. It's a very tedious process to get that rust out of there. I don't know how I'm going to do it without damaging the paint. I have to figure it out because we got the sequence wrong. This is one way of understanding what Jesus is teaching. He's setting us free to be the kind of people who on the inside are the same as they are on the outside, right? The inside matches the outside. No discrepancy, no distance. What you see is what you get. That's the kind of people who are hanging with Jesus. What does it mean to be a people who live for the invisible world? What does this phrase mean to be a people who lay up treasures in heaven? Help me with that. Anybody? What does it mean to be a people who lay up treasures in heaven? Good. Somebody give me an example. So what would be an example of something like that? How many people were engaged this week praying for the various people around here that are suffering from the flu? Raise your hand, prayer team. Come on, we need to know who you are. How many people had, had a loved one who was out this week? Bad news. Yeah, that's, a, that's an amazing example. I don't know that I've ever thought about that. But that's, if you're looking for public reward on praying for somebody... You're just not going to get that unless you're the kind of person who rolls in the church and says, I've been praying for you all week. Yeah. <laughs> right? In which case, you just spent it. I hope, I hope you like that. That was good, right? You just, you just wasted that. What's another example of laying up treasures in heaven? That's a great one.
What about, what about uh, helping widows and orphans is how James writes it, a great pastor of the first church in, in Jerusalem after Jesus is ascended into heaven. James says, pure religion is this, looking after the widow and the orphan. You know, of two people who are absolutely unable to pay you back, high on the list would be widows and orphans. It's the problem. That's the, that's the deal right there. They're economically stuck. They're not going to be able to pay you back. And Jesus says, or, or James says, that's what, this is what pure religion is. Pure religion empties itself with no need to be repaid. That's awesome. Laying up treasures in heaven. There's a lot of ways to describe it. I think a couple of things that came to my mind as I was praying through this this week is living open-hearted. Living in an open-hearted way, meaning investing the best of what I have in people, not in things, right? That's hard sometimes, isn't it? Because investing in people is complicated, right? Sometimes they give you thanks and sometimes they don't. Investing in things, you know, us men love inanimate objects because they, they're never complicated. They're never, no drama, right? Never looks at you and, you know, I have daughters. I'm swimming in a sea of estrogen. <laughs> prayers accepted. <laughs> living open-hearted means living in a way that invests in the things that matter, right? On deathbeds, only really one thing matters. It's not portfolios and bank accounts. It's the people. It's the unresolved issues in our life. It's the relational things. But another way of investing in the right way or living, uh, laying up for ourselves treasure in heaven would be living open-fisted, right? Open-fisted with the things that we have. So, to be open-hearted means it's not going to take a gun for you to get what's in my heart to come out. It's going to come out because I live that way. To live open-fisted means it's not going to take a gun to my head for you to get to my stuff. Because I understand that my stuff is on loan from God, and it flows through, right? It doesn't flow to and stop. It flows through. Did you ever meet somebody like that? They got nice stuff, but you know what? None of that stuff has them. Man, that's, that's something to shoot for. This phrasing, earthly treasures and heavenly treasures, to a Jew of Jesus' day would have meant something. They would have understood through teaching. They would have just naturally known that that was referring to works of justice and mercy to the poor and to the disenfranchised. Laying up, your, laying up for yourself treasures in heaven would have meant that. Emptying yourself to those who, 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 who are in need. He goes a little deeper in Luke's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus actually tells a story when questioned about this whole deal of laying up, your, laying up treasures in heaven. He tells the story about a man who has a field, he's a farmer, and he has a bumper crop, right? Meaning he had great yield, and all of a sudden his barns are too small. And so he decides to himself, how can I keep all of this stuff? How do I keep this stuff? So he decides, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger barns, because i got to have barns to keep the stuff. Because it's about me, and this is my crop, and this is my stuff. And the ver- that very night, his soul was taken from him, and Jesus' point to those who were listening was, that stuff, it's not about the owner, because I own the stuff. It's about letting it flow through. What might he have done with that extra yield that God gave him in the bounty of, of, of nature? He might have passed that along, right? He might have passed, he may, he may have been a channel for that. Here's the bottom line. We don't own our possessions. We're, we merely administrate them, right? Ownership is a myth. Everything we have is based on this idea, and it's all just a myth. It can go like that. What we have been given to steward is our invitation to join God in the restoration of all that is, you see? The things that we've been entrusted, that's our ticket to play ball in this divine redemption that God is up to in the earth, to be part of what God is doing. 
Why is it so deeply satisfying to be involved in some sort of silent, secret way where you serve justice in a way that nobody ever notices? Why is that so invigorating? Because you've just joined God in this amazing cosmic purpose of bringing it all back home. Because you've allowed it to flow through you. That's laying up treasures in heaven. So let me tell you why I'm struggling so much with these two little pericopes of Scripture. I guess I'm struggling because uh, if I look at my life, I realize that, that for most of my life, my entire purpose behind doing things of faith or behind being part of the church or doing all of these different things has really been about performance. I'm just going to be vulnerable today because I don't think any other thing works. I'm frankly too old to put on airs. It's nobody's fault. It's not my parents' fault. It's not my church that I grew up in's fault. I've heard all of those entities faulted by people who perform. It's maybe not even my fault. It's something I'm coming out of, something I'm waking up from. And maybe in the fourth decade of my life, I'm just tired of performing. It's been more about appearance than true, inward, silent, unnoticed transformation of the heart. It's been more about the outward things. Churches are so easy to fool. All you got to do is be a young person who can speak your mind with some authority and put on a couple of different roles. And next thing you know, they're just shuttling, shuttling you off to Bible school and to seminary and you're going to be the next great thing. And then you wake up one day and you realize, you know, I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of performing. I'm just tired of performing. So I've been asking myself a series of questions. And I wonder if you might ask yourself some of these questions today as we reflect on Jesus' thoughts on fasting and laying, laying up treasure for ourselves in heaven. The myth is that if the crowd thinks I'm good, I'm good. And it's got an equally pernicious downside to the same myth is if the crowd thinks I'm terrible, then apparently I'm bad. This is the, this is the performance frame, right? How can I be set free from this? How can I be set free from the need to be needed the need to be praised, the need to be noticed. Bless you. How can I be set free from the need to perform? If I'm only okay when the crowd says I'm okay, that is a dark and sinister arrangement, and it's unfair to the crowd, and it's unfair to me, because what it precludes is the voice of God who says, I am enough, that my soul is well, that with rust on the inside and rust on the outside, he still inked the deal. It's not resilient to ebb and flow with the praise of man because before you know it, God will ask you, the Holy Spirit will ask you to say something and the, the praise will leave. It'll be like Jesus who crosses the water, teaches on how his flesh is bread that must be eaten and an entire crowd, a whole movement looks at him and says, yeah, no, I don't know. Who's that other rabbi? Let's go, maybe we can catch the, the matinee across the water. Let's get out of here. It's not fair to the crowd and it's not fair to the performer, you see. It's humbling to admit this, but there have been whole conversations that I have, have, I have had in which the real me never emerged. You had those? That was a collective, oh, right? Never once, not the real me. Never once. In the, I, are you like me where you rehearse and replay conversations in your head a million times over? It's funny when I replay it or when I play it in advance and coach myself on how it's going to go. I show up. But then I'm in this exchange with somebody who's expecting something, who needs something, who wants something, who desires something. And somehow it's difficult. It's different, right? 
it's worse. There have been entire seasons in my life where I've, cons- where I've constructed an entire persona that met the needs of those around me, and the real me never emerged. It was performance. Whole seasons, guys. What about you? Where are you imprisoned in your life in the need to perform? What an uncomfortable question. Where are you locked in a role and you're just, you're just tired of the lines? They worked for a while, but you're tired of it. The real you will not be, will not be still. And it's like there's this war in you now because it worked for a decade or so, but the real you wants to emerge and say, I'm done with it. Where is that happening to you? How long does the applause actually satisfy? It's so fickle. Said Mike Pickle. He's laughing at me. I want to be tactful here because I don't want to suggest to you that if you're in a relationship or in a world that you have to perform in order to be okay in, I don't want to suggest to you that changing that relationship is going to fix you because we've talked about that. That would be changing paint on a tank with rust on the inside. So if you're, I, I, I just want to be careful here, if you're in a space where you've decided, you know what, I'm done performing, I'm out of this, I'm done with this, just know that you take that with you, that goes with you, right? Because what Jesus is trying to do is bathe the inside with nuts and bolts and acetone and shake that up and get that flake to go away, get that rust to go away. Sorry. Changing paint doesn't change the thing. How am I imprisoned? You know, it's an interesting thing because it's a prison with wide bars and I hold the key and I'm on the inside. You get the picture? It's as simple as sticking your hand out, put the key in and letting yourself out. Because the need to perform really comes from inside, doesn't it? It's the need to be praised. It's the need to be noticed. That's why the people of Jesus' day, the ultra-religious, would fast and would actually make themselves look pathetic so they could walk in public and people would say, you look terrible, and they would say, well, I'm fasting. And that's a prison of their own making. How can I change that? How can I get, that's what I'm actively thinking about these days. It's It's what I'm concerned about. If you're in your 20s and you're here, oh, that, oh, that you would learn this in your 20s. Amen. Oh. Amen. If you're in your 30s, oh, just learn it. If you're with me in your 40s, it's about time, isn't it? I've been thinking about how we as a family can get unstuck from this place too. How do we perform for each other? You know, how do we start the hard conversation? How do we begin to unravel years of silence and years of resentment? It's not going to unravel on its own. I probably told you the story, but we, when we went away for our 20th anniversary, I don't know where it came from. Sometimes I just want to choke the Holy Spirit. Because I was sitting on an airplane heading someplace, and I, I was just thinking, how do I make this deeply meaningful for us and for us as a couple? It had been 20 years since we walked the aisle. And I want it to be meaningful, and the Holy Spirit says, ask her. You ready for this? Ask her about the ways that the last 20 years have exceeded her expectations and then the ways that they've actually been a disappointment. And just sit with that. I thought, I'm going to choke you. I thought, that's why I never ask you anything, right? She's like, why are you talking to yourself? I'm like, nothing. How do we have those hard conversations? How do you move beyond the need to perform? You know, I come from a family like this where everybody thought that we were perfect. Pastor's kid, missionary kid. On the outside, I've bumped into people, I can't tell you how many times, when I've said something that leaked out the truth, and they're like, no, that's not your family. I know your family. You guys were perfect. Right? You get that. 
How do you have those hard conversations that pull back the veneer that says, you know what, we're not? How do we stop performing for those around us? I frankly don't care what you think about my children. I'm sorry if that's hard. I'm not that concerned with what you think about how I'm raising my kids. I'm doing that for an audience of God and my wife and a few dear people. And it's not that you're not dear people, but if you guys, how many pastors' kids in the room? Is that a prison or not? You know what I'm talking about. You've got to go three counties over, right, to buy an O'Doul's non-alcoholic beer. (laughs) How can we begin to tell the truth to each other? How can we begin to actually make space when we ask for input to actually hear it undefended? If you got teenagers, you better figure this out quick. I got teenagers. It won't be too many years. I'll have four out of five of my daughters will be teenagers. I know. Thank you, Juan. <laughs> we have big opinions, but what's amazing is that we dance around each other in my house. We've got opinions about everything. But when it comes to real content, we dance around each other because, we, because we're not really sure, right? We're performing. We're saying what needs to be said. I want God to free us of that as a family. I want to be free of that as a person, as a family. I want to be free. What about as a church? How can we as a church become the kind of place that requires no performance in order to, to be accepted? No filter? No pretense to get noticed? I actually think if we're thinking of life in these three circles, myself, my family, and my church, that's probably the area that we, I feel like things are going well. This is kind of a no-filter place. It's just one of those churches. I think it's what caught my eye and drew me. I had a perfectly amazing job. Loved what I did. Was not looking for anything else to do. But that, that space where you don't have to filter things is just, it's just different, right? Truth is, that's kind of been my experience around here. It's not perfect. We're not perfect. If you're new here, oh, just let me tell you now. Don't let the, don't be disappointed. Don't wake up one day and say, oh, they're real. No, this place is, man, we're messed up people. We're leaning gently and hopefully steadily in the direction of Jesus, but we're not running there. We're leaning there. We're working there by inches. I hope you can handle that kind of honesty. But there is a place, there is a space here. There is an air about this place. There's a DNA about this place that's just no filter. Just no filter. It comes from Brandon and Jen. It's kind of how they, it's kind of how they roll. I'm guessing you already picked up on that. If you're new, just take that air in. I feel like that's where God is going. So here's my last thought. This is sad scripture to me. It's sad because I'm the performer. I like other things when he talks about this and that because, man, yeah, I'm on the team. I'm suited up. I'm on the first string, right? I'm out there deflating those balls. I'm sorry, getting ready for that. <laughs> sorry. Half my friends are, uh, are from Seattle, so uh, what, a, what a bizarre game. We were, we, never mind. Sorry. Being a little ADD today. But here's, here's, here's what I think. I think the Father knows how tired we are. I think He knows how tired we are. I think He knows how tired of performing we are. And I think He knows how deeply precious these acts of devotion can be and how profoundly meaningless they often are because we're whipped into a froth trying to impress people and get that praise because we just need to know it's okay. And He sends Jesus in the flesh. He puts on skin like you and me. And he comes along and he says, this stuff, prayer, the poor, fasting, it's meaningless unless you get it right, unless you get the heart of it right. You can comply, 
but don't do it for outward audiences because you have your reward. Be the kind of people who live for treasure that's hidden, that is unseen. It's one step removed from things that create accolades and praise and, and applause. He knows we're tired of trying to get it right, and I have a feeling that the great next victory in your life has nothing to do with you actually trying harder. It has more to do with you releasing open heart, open fist, releasing those things and letting God do that work. He sees us in this. He sees us deeply. I think if we really listen closely to his voice this morning, we might just discover that we're both the prisoner and the jailer. We don't need an enemy. We don't need a jailer. We lock ourselves up when we act and perform. When we dance and sing, and do the things that we know impress people. And I just want to do it for the right reason. He's not saying don't fast, don't pray, don't give to the poor. He's saying do it for the right reason. And I'm not saying don't do the things of devotion in your heart that, that you know school your flesh into Christ's likeness over time, discipleship, the hard work, the heavy lifting of becoming more like Christ. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying do it for the right reason. Just get out of the hamster wheel. You know, just get out of the hamster wheel. 